Welcome to Math Time. My name is Mike, and I'm excited you're here to join us as we continue on exploring the Gospel of Luke. We have enjoyed looking at chapter one. We're going to jump into chapter two today. Just to remind you where we've been, we looked at the introduction in chapter one, and we saw Luke's desire is that we would be convinced, we would be certain of these things that he's teaching us. It's the historical certainty, the uh, certainty about the life of Christ, the identity of Christ who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And so he's writing this gospel that we would have this certainty in our life regarding Christ as our Savior and the salvation that we have through him. And then he goes on in chapter one to talk about the nativity stories of John, who is the forerunner of Jesus, and then of Jesus himself. Uh, And in chapter one, we saw there was a back and forth parallelism between the account with John and the account of Jesus. The angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents. We learned a lot about them and their background, what sort of family John was born into. And then we switched over and we saw the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, giving the announcement of the uh, uh, pregnancy of Mary um, and that miraculous conception that she would have. Then we came back to John and we saw his birth and his naming and circumcision there at the end of chapter one. And today we're going to pick up in chapter two as we look at the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. So we're not actually going to get up to his birth today. We're just going to look at the first seven verses of chapter two. So let's read those first and then we'll dig right in. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Now, this section, these seven verses, have several difficulties in them. There are uh, numerous people that read these verses and think that Luke, uh, even though he is a meticulous researcher, they think that he got some of the details wrong, some of the dates wrong. And uh, maybe he had misinformation. Uh, What we want to do is try to justify the historical information with our biblical information here in Luke chapter 2 and discuss how how this can all fit in and how we can be certain about the events of the life of Jesus Christ. So let's start by looking at some of the characters here. In verse 1, we're introduced to Caesar Augustus. It tells us that in those days, and that, that phrase, first of all, those days is speaking and looking back to the days of uh, John growing and surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, and the days that those events were taking place, it says that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, this decree was a proclamation. Uh, it, It was a command. The word is actually a dogma. And so it's a command that needed to be obeyed. And it went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, we want to take a look at Caesar Augustus here, first of all. Now, he is the first uh, Roman emperor of the Republic in that sense. He reigned from uh, about 27 BC until his death in 14 AD. And it, it brought in a, a time of relative peace uh, with, throughout the Roman Empire known as the Pax Romana. So if you've heard about Roman history, you've probably heard of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. 
This was a time when Rome had expanded its borders to quite a distance, had uh, fought many wars. There was a lot of internal warring within the household of Caesar, uh, a lot of assassinations we'll talk about in just a second, where uh, certain individuals were killed in order for others to usurp the throne, and a lot of back and forth fighting of who's in control of this empire that has arisen. And so as Caesar Augustus takes the throne, he comes into a a time when all of the fighting and the battling has occurred, a lot of the uh, usurping and, the, and the, the murders have occurred, and he steps into a time of relative peace, not only within the household of Caesar, but throughout the Roman Empire. Even though there's always been issues, um, they had settled themselves quite a bit at this point. Now, let's take a little bit of a look at the person Caesar Augustus. His, his great uncle is a man that we know of, Julius Caesar. And so, uh, Caesar was an individual that uh, we know historically uh, as the, the great emperor of Rome as it was uh, changing from becoming an empire into a republic. Um, and he, he uh, Caesar Augustus here becomes even more important than Julius Caesar in a lot of these respects. And so uh, Caesar Augustus' real name is Octavian. Okay, And so he would have... Uh, he rose to power on the heels of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was his great uncle. So uh, Octavian's uncle was, uh, or, or, or uh, grandmother was Julius Caesar's sister. So that's the relationship there. And so Octavian was a great military leader. And he won the Roman civil wars and uh, ruled uh, Rome as the emperor there after Julius Caesar. So uh, without Octavian, without Caesar Augustus, we probably would not be speaking of Julius Caesar because Rome would have fallen into disarray. It would not have been great. And so Octavian himself, uh, Caesar Augustus there, he's a very competent politician. He was a great military commander, but his real true gifting, his true talent was an, as an administrator. He was a great leader. He was a great organizer of the people there. So he administered uh, the empire very well, and he brought about that peace. He brought about all sort of administrative reforms that led to a lot of flourishing of trades and the arts throughout the empire. Um, and he also reformed the Roman Republic, creating the empire there. And he did this all through, through a lot of hard work, a lot of diligence, a lot of dedication, even though he had personal tragedies in his life and he had great bouts of illness that he fought against. He uh, worked very hard to make Rome the great empire that we know today. So <clears throat> to get back to his uh, personal history, he's the, the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, as we mentioned. So his grandmother was Julius Caesar's sister. And he was born on September 23rd in 63 BC. And his birth name is Gaius Octavius. His mother, Atia, uh, was the daughter of Julia, the sister of Julius Caesar. And his father, we don't know a whole lot about his father, but his father was appointed as a Roman senator and was eventually elected as a praetor, the, one of the, the leaders and the rulers here. So his father was engaged in Roman politics. His father died in 59 BC. So uh, Octavius was only uh, about four years old when his father died. Now in 47 BC, at the age of about 16, Octavius was made a member of the board of Roman priests. So he's in line to become a Roman priest. Um, and his great uncle, Julius Caesar, became the chief priest, a term you might have heard, the Pontifus Maximus. And so this is when the Caesars not only controlled the political uh, 
aspirations of the empire, but they began, they began to take on a more religious role as well, becoming the chief priest as well as the chief politician. And so Octavius is now in line uh, of priests there under Julius Caesar. In 44 BC, at the age of 19, Octavius went to Albania, and uh, he was completing his academic and military training there in Albania. And while, while he was there, he learned of the assassination of his granduncle, Julius Caesar, and he returned home uh, to learn and, and, and found out that Caesar, Julius Caesar there, had made Octavius his heir. Uh, so Caesar, Julius Caesar had adopted Octavius as his son uh, to his political and personal fortunes over his own children and over his own family. And so uh, he was advised not to take that position because he was so young. He had was ill-prepared to deal with the Roman Empire, ill-prepared to deal with the household struggles that he would have faced. But as a young 18, 19-year-old boy, he said, this is too good to pass up. And so he accepts that that. Uh, that role there. And in Julius Caesar's will, he called for games and entertainment to be done at his death in order to celebrate his life and to celebrate the passing on of um, of the torch, if you will. Now, these things require a lot of money to put on. You've got a large empire, you want to put on large games and entertainment, and you've got to pay for this. However, there was a problem there because Mark Anthony, who was another leader, the one that wanted the throne as well, controlled the, the treasury controlled the funds of Caesar and refused to grant Octavius access to those funds in order to fulfill the will. And so what Octavius does is he borrows money in order to, uh, to complete the will of his granduncle, uh, Julius Caesar, and, and he brings these games about. And by doing this, he won the public support of the people. And so uh, he, he uh, gained um, public support from the people as well as military support from the troops because uh, he gave great support to the troops as well, uh, according to Caesar's will. So he's got the, the favor of the people, the favor of the military. And uh, Mark Antony, uh, who was his kind of uh, uh, nemesis there trying to, to gain power as well, was defying the Senate. Um, and the Senate was led by a great orator by the name of Cicero, and they called upon Octavius to, uh, to join with them in the Senate against Antony. And so the Senate themselves makes Octavius a senator, as well as the Caesar, and the troops of Octavius join the troops of the Senate, and they've got an even greater military, even greater force, and they're able to drive Antony out, out of Italy into Gaul, into modern-day Spain. And then there's a, eventually there's a battle with Antony's forces, um, the elected consuls of Rome were killed in that, and uh, Octavius's troops demand that the Senate give the title of consul to Octavius. Octavius now becomes one of the great leaders there, and he's officially recognized as the son of Julius Caesar there at that time, and at that point, he takes the name Gaius Julius Caesar, and so he's, he's more generally known as Octavian during that period, so... That's his history back there. Now, in 43 BC, uh, they agreed to some sort of a sharing of power, Octavian and, and Antony. They agreed to kind of share power along with the, a man by the name of Lepidus, uh, who was the Pontifus Maximus after Julius Caesar. And they're designated by the Senate as a group called the Triumvirate. And these are the ones that have dictatorial powers for five years. So they're trying to control who's in, uh, on the throne. And uh, they've got a, a limited uh, rulership, if you will. 
Now, 10 years later, in 33 BC, this triumvirate is disbanded. They're sent their separate ways. They, they couldn't agree. Uh, Lepidus has died. And so you've got uh, a battle for, the <clears throat> battle for the throne again. Now, Mark Anthony had married Octavian's sister uh, in order to try to consolidate the, the royal line. Mark Anthony was trying to get the throne. But Mark Anthony really loves somebody else, somebody I know you've heard of, Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. So Anthony divorces Octavian's sister and pursues Cleopatra and begins de uh, dedicating his rulership and his territories to the sovereignty of Cleopatra. And so uh, this doesn't go well with Octavian because he sees uh, losing the Roman Empire back to Egypt. Egypt here is going to be coming in and, and is growing in strength and gaining territories because Anthony is handing them over to his love Cleopatra. And so he uh, chases them down and confronts them in Greece. And then it actually ends up invading Egypt in 30 AD, uh, subjecting Egypt to Rome. They, they win that battle and, and Egypt becomes a vassal state of Rome at that point. Now in 28 BC, uh, you've got a, a, a controlled Roman Empire now. You've got Egypt brought under the, the confines of Rome. You've got Octavian ruling uh, on his own there. And, and Octavian's appointed president of the Senate. He's awarded the name Augustus and thereafter is referred to as Caesar Augustus. Caesar, the, the great Caesar uh, there. And so he uh, conducts a census of the population at, port, at that point to see how many people he rules over, to uh, issue taxes, to uh, be able to administer the, um, the rulership of the empire with great effectiveness. Remember, he was a great administrator, so he needed the information in order to administrate well. So in 28 BC, we see that census by Caesar Augustus. Now, fast forward up to 12 BC, we're getting closer to our current time frame. Augustus is appointed Pontifus Maximus, the chief priest, after Lepidus uh, and Mark Anthony has died. Uh, and then uh, King Agrippa also dies, and Augusta wants to ensure that one of his descendants is going to rule Rome. So he forces his daughter, who's the widow of Agrippa, to marry Tiberius, who's his stepson. So we're getting a lot of stuff trying to keep it in the family here. So his daughter... Uh, is the widow of King Agrippa who, who died, marries Tiberius, who's his stepson, so that you can keep the succession in the family. And then in 4 AD, uh, now after the birth of Christ, just looking forward a little bit, Augustus officially adopts Tri Tiberius as his son and the heir to uh, the leadership of the Roman Empire. He confers all the power on Tiberius, nearly equal to his own. And at this point, he's about 67 years old. Tiberius was 42 and Tiberius goes on and uh, adopts Germanicus, who is the son of his brother, and so on. And, and then 6 AD, Rome annexes Judea, completely uh, brings them under its lead. And uh, King Herod, uh, we know about King Herod, and we'll see him shortly, uh, had been kind of a client state, but wasn't fully under the empire there. Um, and then in 14 AD, Augustus falls ill and dies on August 19th. And on September 17th of that year, the Roman Senate designated him as a god. And then Tiberius succeeds Augustus as uh, Principate, the, the first citizen of Rome there. And no one held the title of emperor after that, but um, Augustus becomes that great emperor of Rome. So this is who we're talking about. We've, we've gone from Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithful priests uh, serving God in the temple, dedicating their lives in humility to the service of God. 
now to a, a person, Caesar Augustus, who has been uh, risen up through the uh, royal families, uh, given appointments at an early age, and has always been in a place of leadership and authority. And so he sends out this decree in verse 1 that goes out from Caesar Augustus, and it says that all the world should be registered. They should be counted. So we're going to take a registration. Some say that this is a census. And we can talk a little bit in just a moment about what that would have looked like and what that would have meant for the people. But let's introduce ourselves to a second person that's involved here. Because again, the time frame is very important. So we've got Caesar Augustus uh, living from 63 BC to 14 AD, ruling solely from about 29, uh, 28 BC up to the time of his death in 14 AD. And then in verse 2, we see a second person uh, mentioned here. It says, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So we've got the Caesar of all of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, uh, and the decree goes out from him in those days. And just so uh, what Luke is doing here is giving us a firm historical setting of when this occurs. And it happens, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, Quirinius is a, another individual that we're going to see here. And so let's take a look at him for a minute. His full name is Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. And uh, he was born in 51 BC, dies in 21 AD. He's a Roman aristocrat. So he's a leader and a politician. Now, what happened after Herod the Great dies is that the kingdom is split between his four sons. And it's called a tetrarchy. And so you have the four children uh, and some generals of, of Herod uh, uh, taking over uh, Herod's rulership of Judea and the areas around that in 6 AD. And so after one of those uh, tetrarchs, known as Herod Archelaus, is banished because of his actions, Quirinius is appointed the legate governor of Syria. And so Judea was added to that for the purposes of a census. And if all that history, if you're, if you're a history buff, you can go to Josephus, uh, his Antiquities of the Jews, uh, book 18, chapter 1, talks about this time of Quirinius. So we've got a lot of detail on that. And it's about 6 AD that that's happening. Now, the problem with this is that we've got some different time frames here because the birth of Jesus Christ, as we're going to see, is before 4 BC, because Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. And what we see in the book of Matthew is that when Jesus is born, uh, the wise men come and say, we're looking for this king who was born. And Herod the Great, who is a very conflicted individual, um, very jealous, um, wanted to preserve his power at all costs, saw this newborn king as a threat to his kingdom. So he goes out and kills all the children two years of age and under. And so uh, that occurs in around anywhere between 6 to 4 BC because King Herod dies in 4 BC. So Jesus has to be born around, I'm going to say 5 BC is probably when Jesus was born, give or take a year or so. And so if we have Herod uh, one dating in Matthew uh, by, by the reign of Herod being a more local regional reign and the events that occurred there with the, the murder of the, of the innocents, the murder of those children, then we can't have Caesar Augustus and Quirinius having a co-reign, if you will, Augustus in Rome and Quirinius in Judea at 6 AD. We've got a, a, at least a 10-year time span difference where something's going on here. We need to justify this somehow. 
And so some people look at that and they say, well, there, there could not have been a Roman census. Luke must have gotten something wrong. Uh, Luke is mistaken in his history. Uh, he's either named the wrong person or named the wrong census or there was no census or whatnot. But there's uh, a problem with this. This is, first of all, it's a logical fallacy to make that argument. This is the argumentum excellentio, the argument from silence, is that because there is no information there, we've come to our own conclusion that is speculative. Now, um, uh, just because there's no mention of it in Matthew or because there's uh, some apparent discrepancies here doesn't mean we can't justify the accounts. And so that's what we're going to do today. Now, there is an alternative that we can take uh, that will provide a solution for this. So we're going to step back a little bit and analyze what we can know from history and uh, sync that in with what Scripture does and does not say. That's going to be very important. And we'll see what Luke says about these things, that this is actually a consistent account that we can, we can bring at least some understanding to this. And so, uh, first of all, let's take a look at Quirinius. Quirinius, the, the governor there of Syria, it tells us he was governor of Syria in verse 2. Now, it, it, Quirinius is a man, it tells us that he was a very zealous man. He served zealously. He benefited Rome in many, many ways. Uh, he conducted a census in 6 AD upon taking his power as governor there. And um, that census was for the purpose of counting up the people. And he began a census every eight years following that in order for taxation and uh, being able to represent the people effectively. And so it's not unlikely that he would have overseen some sort of registration, as our word in verse 1 calls it, uh, or, or conducted some kind of a survey at an earlier date prior to his governorship because he was very active from 12 BC all the way up to 6 AD in the region without the official title. So that's one thing we can say. Another thing is it's important to note what the verse does not say. Luke does not say that the Quirinius was the governor, or the legate is the term, of Syria. Now, the way our English Bible translates this, it, it, it makes it sound like that term governor is a title. But this is not an official title that Quirinius holds. So it can be translated from the original Greek. The verb that's used to translate governor is hegemoneo. Now, the word hegemoneo means that he was exercising authority. He had some authority or rulership, even though he didn't hold a specific office of governor. And so we could translate this. This was the first registration when Quirinius was exercising authority of Syria or in Syria. And so perhaps he's not become the legate or governor of Syria as he had in 6 AD, but he's active. And we actually have a, a large span of time in, in the life of Quirinius where we don't know exactly what he's done. From 12 BC up to about 6 AD, there's large gaps in his life. We just know that he was leading in uh, the region of Judea and that he was known as a zealous servant of Rome. And so it would appear that, that Quirinius oversaw and as a military leader, as an administrator, as a director, he would have uh, uh, been a, a, a significant part of any type of account or a registration that would have occurred in this region. So it's very likely that prior to 6 AD, he had a, a role in a count. So <clears throat> there is the record of a, uh, of a registration or a census appointed by Quirinius when he's governor of uh, Syria in 6 AD. 
And so uh, it's not out of, out of uh, the possibility that he would have done something earlier than that. Now, this is the census that's possibly referred to in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, where the people are counted there. So Luke is aware of this. And this would have been the second census led by Quirinius. So notice in our uh, passage here in verse 2, it says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor. And so Luke is aware of a second one in 680 that he talks about in Acts chapter 5. So this is the first registration that could have been as early as 8 BC uh, and then would have taken a couple of years to fulfill uh, if it had come down from Caesar Augustus. So we'll get to that in just a second. So Quirinius probably had some level of governorship in Syria around this time. It's around the time of Christ's birth. He conducted this earlier registration. Uh, so two options are available to us. Either he had been legate of Syria twice. So maybe he had been appointed governor earlier on during the time of Christ's birth. And then it was a reappointed governor in 6 AD. Don't necessarily think that's the case, but that's a possibility. Or... If he didn't have a previous governorship, he held a different role of leadership and authority within Syria, uh, which is consistent with Luke's description of Quirinius having authority or governorship in Syria at that time without the official title and position. I think that one's much more likely. Now, the second thing to note, another key thing we want to note in chapter 2, verse 2 here, is that the text does not say that this was a census for the purpose of determining taxes. Uh, there's a misunderstanding based on the way some some translations translate this, specifically the King James Version. Uh, it, the word used is apographo when we're talking about the registration or uh, the counting of the people. And it's simply translated a registration or a census. Now, to conclude that we're doing the census for the purpose of taxation is not necessary. That's an added remark into there. So we don't need to do that. And so it not, isn't necessarily for taxing. It's simply a count of the people for administrative purposes or for knowledge for whatever reason. Now, we can look at this and say, are there any other registrations that Luke might have referred to? Now, getting back to Caesar Augustus, uh, his biography records that he, uh, he called for a census in 8 B.C., and there was another event in 2 BC in which the entire Roman people gave him the title Father of My Country. And so Josephus makes note of this and talks about this. Uh, and he says that during that census, there were 6,000 Pharisees that refused to swear loyalty to Caesar. And so uh, with that all put together, we can look at this as an empire-wide registration uh, decreed by Caesar Augustus in 8 BC that six years later, after all of this would have taken place in, in 2 BC, at the conclusion of this, the, uh, the title, Father of My Country, would have been given to Caesar Augustus based on the results of the census. And so you can count some of this out, and uh, we actually have full numbers there. Uh, another ancient writer, Erosius, uh, possibly referred to this registration when he he wrote uh, uh, that, that all of the nations came and took an oath of loyalty, loyalty to Caesar and were made part of one society. So it was a unification of the Roman people uh, after all of these expanses under Caesar Augustus had occurred. And, and his autobiography, Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, 
Notes that he conducted a registration in 28 BC, and there were 4.063 million people counted at that time. Again, in the one in 8 BC, which I would argue is the one here in, in Luke chapter 2, there were 4.233 million people. So we've gained 200,000 people in those few years. And then finally, in 14 AD, there was another census given where there were 4.937 million people counted. So he's got a history of censuses every periodically. And uh, this one in 8 BC, if Jesus is born around 6 or 5 BC, it makes sense that the, uh, the decree from Rome goes out and you've given two years for the people to go and travel back to their homelands at appointed times to be counted by the Romans, uh, military and Roman officials that have come through the land it fits in perfectly in my book for a date of 6 or 5 BC that Joseph and Mary would have gone to uh, Bethlehem in order to be counted. And so I, I, I don't see a, a discrepancy there. Uh, Quirinius could have been governing or exercising authority in Syria without the, appoint, the appointed designation of governor, the office of governor. He would have had that, uh, wouldn't have had that title yet. And the dating all fits quite well. I think that's a plausible account for that. And so... Uh, those uh, claims of historical discrepancy on Luke's account, uh, I think they're answerable uh, for some of those uh, some of those reasons. So let's keep going. In verse three, it says, "And all went to be registered, each to his own town." So you would you would come back home to your other to your location. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. We saw in chapter one that's where they lived to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, uh, who was with child. Now, there's another objection that people throw out here, believe it or not. <laughs> the, the other objection is that Rome would not require people to return to their ancestral hometowns. Um, and so, that, that again is another argument that, that can be answered, because we do have an account from Egypt uh, in about 104 AD, we have a, the British Museum Papyrus 904, uh, and it records a census that was given there. And at this time, by the way, Egypt is a uh, province of Rome. They had been conquered. Remember, they, uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra had been chased down by Caesar Augustus, and Augustus had taken over Egypt, made them a province of Rome at that point. And so this is a Roman uh, census of Egypt around that time. And it declares uh, in a decree from the prefect Gaius Vibius Maximus that, quote-unquote, all those who for any cause whatsoever are residing outside of their provinces are to return to their own homes for the purpose of the census. So we do have a written record of a Roman census requiring people to travel back to their hometowns to be counted if they lived away from their, their homes. And so... Uh, that is certainly possible. There's no reason to doubt that, that Joseph and Mary would have had to come back to their ancestral hometown according to their family lineage to be counted appropriately that way. And we know that the, the city of David there is identified as the city uh, of Bethlehem in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 6. Uh, this is his town. Uh, King David would have grown up in the hills around Bethlehem shepherding uh, the sheep. This is where he would have uh, lived his early life. He would have been known throughout the region. So uh, this area was uh, just on the outskirts of modern day Jerusalem. You can still go there. It's still called the city of David to this day. And uh, a lot of the physical uh, things are still there. They still, they have a, a, a 
archaeological dig that they believe could have been uh, part of the um, house of David, uh, the actual house that David lived in when he was king at that time. So it's a very incredible site there. But uh, aside from those historical notes, um, the primary purpose that Luke is putting this in here, he's making a big deal out of this because he's fulfilling biblical prophecy. <laughs> the First of all, that you've got this reiterated from chapter 1 all the way in through chapter 2. He's from the house of David. And that's very, very important to the Jewish person because the primary expectation of the Messiah is he's from the lineage of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, we call it the Davidic covenant. This is where God promised that someone from the line of David would sit on the throne forever. So if Jesus is the coming Messiah, he must fulfill that requirement. And so he's a, a of the lineage of the house of David, and that's reiterated multiple times there. And so it's re- reiterated here in verse 4, Uh, that Jesus is of the line of David. (laughs) And that's very important. And and the necessity for the travel back to Bethlehem. Why couldn't he have just stayed in Nazareth and been born? Why does he have to go to Bethlehem? Well, because again, this was fulfilling prophecy that is applied to the Messiah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, and there are two Bethlehems, so we're getting a clarification of which Bethlehem is being described here, You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. And this was viewed as a messianic prophecy that the Messiah, the the ruler of Israel, the one spoken of from before, uh, from old, from ancient of days, from the old times, the one that we've been expecting is going to come from Bethlehem. So Jesus, in order to be identified as from Bethlehem, must be born there. So this is fulfilling the sovereign plan of God and bringing about the fulfillment of prophecy and uh, the, the Messiah, Jesus. And he's identifying Jesus clearly as the Old Testament Messiah placed in history through the Roman era. And so it's an incredible certainty we have about the nature and person of Jesus and who we're talking about here. Now, this journey is about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. For, for Joseph, it would have been fairly easy. There, was, there were some good roads there. There was a good way to travel. But it would have been very difficult for the pregnant Mary because they're coming out of the hills of Nazareth down into the Judean hills. It would have been quite a difficult journey being nine months pregnant on the back of a donkey. Um, Joseph probably would have taken her because he doesn't want to leave his nine-month pregnant wife at home in a town where she has become pregnant outside of marriage. It would have been a stigma at that time. Uh, She could have been stoned for that and judged for that. It even tells us that Joseph, being a just man, uh, wanted to put her away quietly. He didn't want any harm to come to her because he genuinely loved her, and he knew the consequences of infidelity uh, in that culture. Uh, But he he keeps her and he stays betrothed to her. Um, and so therefore he's keeping her with him in order to prevent harm to come from her based on their circumstances. And we know the circumstance as being from God, but the people in the in their community would not have fully grasped that at that point. And so uh, the whole uh, situation of Mary having traveled with Joseph, having to go to Bethlehem, this is God's sovereignty at work here. God is fully in charge of all of these sort of things. And then verse 6, we've got the simple statement, and while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, while they had traveled, the time came for her to give birth. 
And so the natural time of her pregnancy, she, she was ready to deliver. Uh, but not only that, there's a, a play on words here. It's a, in the fullness of times, Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, that God would bring forth his son at the right time, at the right moment, when all of these other things have been fulfilled. When human history is prepped and prepared to perfection, God would bring forth the Messiah. And so that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing God at the right time. When the fullness of time had come, he gives his son to humanity. And so in that simple verse, it's, it, it's a simple fulfillment there, but we can read into it a little bit deeper that the, the time came, that the thousands of years prior, the expectations of the coming Messiah, all the way back from Genesis 3.15, where we have the first indication of a son coming that would crush the head of the serpent. That proto-evangelium is what we call that. The first evangelism, the first gospel of the good news of salvation, the fullness of that time has now come. The Messiah is now coming. The Son is now coming. And so we can be excited for that. And we can see the, the, the anticipation boiling over at this point. The time had come. And then on into verse 7. And uh, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, a couple first notes before we wrap this up is that this is her firstborn son. There were other children that Mary had. We've, we've mentioned this before, that uh, that doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary doesn't fit a biblical standard. Mary went on to have other children with Joseph. Uh, other gospels talk about Jesus's brothers and sisters being present and so on. So we can deny the perpetual virginity of Mary. And it also, uh, the, the concept of Jesus being the firstborn son, it designates Jesus as the one with the inheritance rights. Now, it's, it's not as important on a physical sense that Jesus would have inherited the, the house and the shop and whatever those things from Joseph and Mary, but it's very important uh, that he's the firstborn of the lineage of the house of David. So he has the full inheritance rights from the line of David. He's that firstborn child. And so it's not the material inheritance, it's the spiritual inheritance. It's that lineage inheritance that Jesus receives there. And so she gives birth to her firstborn son. She wraps him in swaddling cloths. These are just strips of cloth that they would have had, that they would have uh, uh, wrapped a baby up tight. For those of you who have had children, you know you've got the, the blankets that we wrap them. We called it like a taco. And you, you wrap their arms in tight and, and they feel protected uh, and they feel um, confined in a sense. They, they're not able to scratch uh, or, or cause any harm to themselves. And, and it's just a form of protection for the child as well as a form of warmth and those sort of things. So that's exactly what she did. Wrapped him in, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now here's where we get into another difficulty. <laughs> if verses one and two and all of the historical dif difficulties weren't enough, we've got multiple images of, of the nativity scene around Christmas time. What did the birth of Jesus actually look like? Now, in that culture, uh, hospitality was king. It would have been very unusual for a family to be in town or someone to be visiting and for the people living there not to make every opportunity uh, to uh, accommodate every guest. 
Uh, to run out of food was one of the worst things. We're going to see one of Jesus' first miracles in John is that he the, the, the water turned into wine at the wedding in Cana. And that was a major deal because when they ran out of wine, it was uh, an inability to be hospitable to the guests. And it would have been a great social problem there. And Jesus deals with that. And so for uh, Joseph and Mary traveling now to uh, Bethlehem, uh, there's no room for them at the end, how does this fit that picture? Now, let's talk about the inn for a second here. Uh, the inn uh, is a specific word there uh, that can be translated as an upper room or a guest room, or it can also be an inn. There's another word used for more of a commercial style inn, what we would think of as a hotel today. In those days, it would have been called a caravanserai. And what you basically have in a caravanserai is you have four walls around an open central courtyard. And in that central courtyard, you would be able to put your cargo and house your animals and whatnot. And then you would generally go up some steps to a second floor and you'd be able to roll out your mat and and those sort of things and sleep there. And so your animals, uh, your servants would be taking care of the animals downstairs. Your cargo that you're carrying would be downstairs. And you, as a guest, would be able to be upstairs nearby getting rest and so on. But it would have been an open area, uh, uh, very full. Um, this could also be stables that are on the side of a courtyard. Sometimes what they would do is they would have the main floor. If you didn't have multiple levels, you would have a main floor where your guests would stay. And then you would have kind of a drop off. And then you would have a stable area slightly down below. So the animals couldn't climb up to the guests, but they would have their own area down below. And on that ledge there, you would have holes dug into usually rocks where they would be able to put food in little bowls and uh, the animals would have been able to come to eat. And that would have been the manger itself. Another possibility is that, uh, I think less likely, is that oftentimes they might have had a cave nearby associated with the inn. And so the, the animals could have been taken away from the inn itself uh, for uh, noise issues, smell issues, and so on, and bedded down in a cave and protected there. Um, that's certainly a possibility. And then the final possibility is that we are getting with an upper room. And we'll talk about that in just a second here. And so, but first of all, why is there no room? Why is there no place for them? Well, if we are talking about a caravanserai, a commercial style inn, there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, one is that perhaps the town is just so swollen with people coming back for the census. This is a time when many people would have traveled back. The lineage of the house of David has got a thousand generations in it at this point. That's a lot of people. And so the city was swelling over with people back for the census. And so there's no room for them at an inn and there's no room for them to stay. And so... Uh, they would have arrived late, perhaps, uh, after everybody else, and others had already gotten the best places. But for my buck, that doesn't seem to fit the picture of the Middle Eastern hospitality. Others would have made room for this nine-month pregnant woman to come and have a place to stay that's not with the sheep and the animals. Um, and so it, it doesn't seem to fit that well with me. You would, uh, today, somebody would give up their place for a pregnant woman like that. Uh, you know, even in our less hospitable culture, uh, we would make room for someone like that. So I struggle with that one. Uh, there's a second reason why that I think is much more likely. Um, and that second reason is that because of the Roman presence in town, you have a the Roman uh, military, Roman officials, Roman administrators come into town to conduct this census, this registration. And the Jews would have wanted to have nothing to do with the Romans. They wouldn't want 
of interact in society. They would have kept themselves separate and not mixed there. And so the Jews would have been staying in their homes and Romans would have been staying in more public spheres, more of like a caravansary. They would have taken over that area. And so there's no uh, bedding place for them at that case. And so you would stay in people's homes rather than in the public uh, areas where the Romans were. That one seems a bit more likely. Uh, to me. Uh, There's also another situation where uh, because they're in Bethlehem, they're just a short distance outside of Jerusalem. And Bethlehem, as we saw in Micah 5, 2, is so small and insignificant. Why would the Messiah come from there? Why also would you have a large hotel there? (laughs) If you're really a, a short distance from Jerusalem, which is the generally the destination of most people, you would just finish off your journey. You wouldn't stay in Bethlehem. You would go all the way into Jerusalem. And so the odds of a, a, of a comparable size uh, inn in a commercial sense that, that uh, would be in Bethlehem is probably pretty small. You would just finish your journey. And if you're leaving Jerusalem, going back home, you're not going to leave Jerusalem, walk the short distance to Bethlehem and stay the night there. You're going to keep on going to a larger destination. And so... All of that to point out this. The way I read this is that uh, this is the term upper room. And so the, the, it's the same word used in Mark 14:14 14, 14, and in Luke 22:11, where Jesus takes the disciples and has the last meal. It's that upper room setting. Now this upper room often served as a guest room. Uh, most uh, homes there that were, were people had enough money and had the ability to do so, they would build a guest room on so that they could practice hospitality. And so uh, you've got, uh, there's no room for them in the upper room. There's no, the guest room is full. Now, as the census is going on and you've got people traveling back to Bethlehem, the residents of Bethlehem would have been more than hospitable to put travelers up in their homes, to give out their their, uh, guest rooms, and to fit as many people as possible in there. And they would have been honored to do so for a person from the lineage of David. That was a high lineage, a high distinction. So you certainly wouldn't turn someone away like that. And so my thought is that is that as they come, there's no place for them in the upper room. There's no place for them in the guest room. The guest room is already filled. You've already got a lot of people coming back for the census. And so they've made every accommodation for them there. They couldn't offer them private space in which to have the child and to to uh, you know bed everything down. They didn't have appropriate bedding for the child that would give them the opportunity to take care of the child. So they laid the child in a manger. They laid the child in, in in a nearby space where it was a, a hewn out piece of rock that the, bi- the the child could lay in and not roll out of for the safety issues. And so that way the people could conduct their business. No one's going to be stepping on the manger. No one's going to be falling into the manger area. The baby is out of the way of the crowds that are at the house. Mary could attend to the baby without being in the middle of the crowd uh, and so on and so forth. They would have had a greater opportunity to do that. They could have just cleaned out that rock area, laid Jesus in there. It would have been, uh, you know, a little hay underneath would have been a perfect little crib for Jesus to lay in. So it would have been the most hospitable way that a family could take care of Jesus in a home that was bustling and overflowing with people uh, that would fit the culture and fit the term, uh, fit the people there. There was no place for Jesus, so they laid him in the feeding trough. And so we see Jesus here uh, with all of that historical background, with all of the difficulties that those seven verses alone bring to the nativity story of Jesus. We see that historically, uh, culturally, uh, this account of Luke can fit 
with the events that took place. We see all the way back from Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. The time frame can certainly fit. The verbiage that Luke uses fits and is appropriate. And so we can date that to around 6 or 5 BC that these events are taking a place. Um, all the way into Matthew, we see that Herod dies in March or April of 4 BC. And so he's taking every child two years of old and younger. So Jesus would have been born at the earliest, March or April of 6 BC. Um, perhaps late 6 BC or early 5 BC is realistic. Uh, and then they're in the uh, the the upper room there. Uh, they're they're not cast out of an inn. The the hospitality of that community would have allowed them in and done everything they could to take care of them. And we see that's exactly what they were doing. Uh, there's no place in the upper room, so they make place for them in the safest, comfortable, most private area they can, which is uh, the manger uh, where the animals would have normally been. It would have given them that place. But we see all of this to summarize it as the sovereign plan of God. God is directing world systems as well as local regional systems to the place to bring the right people to the right place at the right time. So Joseph and Mary from the line of David, reiterated over and over again, find themselves in Bethlehem at the behest of the Roman emperor, uh, at behest of the local leadership to be counted. And in Bethlehem, uh, Mary has become pregnant through divine interaction. Um, And and Elizabeth has already had John three months prior. uh, And all of the fulfillment of these things, or six months prior, all of the fulfillment of these things has been at the behest and the timing and direction of God. And so he's placed Mary where she needs to be in order to fulfill prophecy of Micah to have this child, Jesus. And Jesus comes forth, the firstborn son of the line of David, full inheritance rights to the lineage of, uh, glories that are present there and, and able to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies surrounding the birth of Jesus. And we've only hit a few here. As we get down into the, the coming sections, we're going to see even more things that Jesus fulfills in his birth to show, to prove that we can be certain that he is the long-awaited Messiah that the Old Testament has promised for us. So I know this was a historically deep one. I know there was a lot of details around it that weren't necessarily in the scriptures, but hopefully it gives greater clarity and certainty to you that the scriptures are accurate, that the scriptures are giving us a real historical portraying of the man Jesus Christ in history that God has brought forth so that you and I can have salvation from our sins, the long-awaited promised Messiah. Next time, we're going to look in at at chapter 8 or or chapter 2, verse 8 and onwards at the first visitors and the first uh, announcement of the new child. So join us next time here on Mathetai. Go to our website at mathetai.org where you can check out uh, lots of other studies, uh, see what's happening around the world as we're able to minister in in multiple countries and locations. You can support us there. We've got some merch. We've got t-shirts, cups, pens, notebooks, all sorts of things we can get there and some great information for you on what we're doing. And uh, make sure you uh, like and comment on on this on on our YouTube channel. Uh, and, and definitely subscribe so you can get updates and uh, um, as we put new content out there that you can stay on top of everything. So God bless you guys. Thanks for listening and I hope you're blessed. Uh, serve him today and uh, know that he is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Mm-hmm.